Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our talk uh, this afternoon on India's age of extremism with Priyam Vardagopal. I'm Anne Mossop from the Sydney Opera House, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you here. I'm sure most of you, I don't know, it'll be, I'd be interested to know, some of you might, this might be your first talk here today. Others of you have been up since dawn, um, getting dangerous, maybe having a few laughs with Alexi Sale. Um, we are going to be hearing uh, from uh, our speaker, but there will be time at the end for questions and discussion. So do, uh, do keep in your mind the things that you might want to ask her. So we're here today to find out whether India is becoming less secular and less democratic. Um, and what this trend might hold for the future and might mean uh, for the future of the world's largest democracy. Um, this is something that is fascinating to us in Australia. We see India in a particular way, and to a large extent, I think we... There's a narrative about the tremendous success or a recent economic success of India, its technological capacities, the dramatic changes that have, are happening in recent years. But at the same time, even though India is a relatively uh, near neighbour, we don't see very much of what goes on behind that. Even when we, even when we travel there, there's, there's a certain... Um, a certain experience that people tend to have. So we're very fortunate today to be able to look behind those narratives to find out a bit more about what is happening. Priyam Gopal is a reader at Cambridge University in Anglophone and Related Literature. She has a fellowship at Churchill College. She's the author of a number of books, one on literary radicalism in India, one on the Indian English novel, and has a new book coming out next year. But she's also someone who's a regular media commentator on a range of political issues, in particular as they relate to India. And she's taken an interest in looking at the developments of, of Hindu nationalism and in particular the role of the Prime Minister Narendra Modi in that. So please join me in welcoming her to the stage, Priyamvada Gopal. Thank you, Anne. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we meet today on the lands of the Gadigal people, and I wish to pay my respects to them, and past and present, and to thank them for uh, allowing me to be here. And I also want to thank Anne and her colleagues at the Sydney Opera House for inviting me to talk specifically about a topic that it is becoming increasingly dangerous to talk about. Uh, certainly in India, and I want to begin by noting that India is a very dangerous place today in which to express dissent, and that there are many people in that country who in recent months have faced harassment and intimidation, even physical violence, for daring to speak their minds about the way things are. Picking up on the conversation started yesterday by Alicia Garza and Stan Grant, um, I want to talk about two kinds of dangerous ideas which I think it is important to distinguish between. There is the kind that is genuinely threatening to the status quo to things as they are. These strive to open out and away from what has always happened or happened many times before into new imaginative possibilities drawing on the best of human capacities towards better modes of social re relations and human existence. 
Then there are the ideas that keep us trapped in vicious circles, endlessly rehearsing stale assumptions and policing fossilized old hierarchies and boundaries, narrowing rather than broadening our outlooks and our imaginations. And in our times, wherever we are, it is vital to distinguish between these two kinds of dangerous ideas, those that are genuinely subversive and committed to changing the world, uh, as it is, and we can all agree this, it's a state of affairs which is really only working for a very small percentage of this planet, and those that have the appearance of being dangerous and exciting, but are really only straining against what little progress has been made in order to reassert in new disguises old hierarchies, hatreds, and divisions. This pretense of being dangerous and subversive is usually done through the fraudulent claim that power is on the side of something called political correctness, which must be bravely challenged. This is an active conservatism that is particularly insidious, for it appropriates the language of oppression, marginalization, and discrimination by those who are anything but oppressed, marginalized, or discriminated against. In the course of my talk, I'm going to look at the workings of this idea that the powerful are victimized by the powerless, that majorities are marginalized by minorities, and that the relatively privileged are being disempowered by the relatively disenfranchised. I have to apologize, I have to drink a lot of water because I've been on flights and I've got one of those uh, throaty things that you get from flights. Hindutva, or Hinduness, uh, first theorized by V.D. Savarkar in uh, 1928, is the extremist ideology about which I'll be talking today. It presents itself to the world with precisely such a claim about oppression and resistance. It speaks in the name of a supposedly wretched, put-upon, exploited, silenced, and marginalized Hindu assumed to be male and upper caste. This figure, however, does not actually exist. Certainly, upper caste males exist. Their reach is extensive and unavoidable. But claims about Hindu oppression are essentially fantastical. As presented to us, this abstract Hindu is the subject of oppression from the era of the Mughals in India through the British colonial period, when the Hindu male was too enfeebled by the Muslim presence to resist colonialism, to the present day when he is at the mercy of everyone, from religious minorities and Dalits to feminists, intellectuals, students, NGOs, homosexuals, secularists, and rationalists. And that is a truncated list of possible enemies that expands on a weekly basis. At these hands, this emblematic Hindu male faces what he calls reverse discrimination, a claim that I'm sure will be familiar to many of you through similar claims made on behalf of economically privileged straight white men, while all the others, in particular Muslims and Christians, are apparently being appeased through ostensibly preferential treatment. India's current Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, an adherent of Hindutva, came to power on the back of his followers' claims that he represented the resurgence of this once downtrodden entity, himself embodying the Virat, or Great Hindu, symbolized in part by his equally mythical 56-inch manly chest. 
A very large part of Modi's appeal has been the claim that he would restore India and Hindus in particular figured interchangeably to their rightful pride of place in the global order. Now, claiming that they will restore their country to its rightful glory is standard fare for most politicians in most countries, so why are we discussing this under the rubric of India's age of extremism? Am I not culpable of scaremongering and exaggeration, guilty of the very denigration of which the adherent of Hindutva complains? Worse, am I not guilty of doing this bad-mouthing, what Hindutva adherents like to call anti-national discourse, in a context where Asians are a minority, a vulnerable minority group, uh, who have faced racist denigration, physical attacks, and patronizing dismissals of their cultural and religious traditions? To that, I would say that it is precisely in areas in which hatred, in which racism and discrimination are a problem, that one must think about the multiple contexts in which hatred and bigotry manifest, drawing in some sense from the same ideological wellspring. We cannot criticize white supremacy or racism without scrutinizing kindred tendencies in our own communities. What we are referring to by that unsatisfactory term extremism, for want of a better one, is a global phenomenon with local manifestations. And that is why what is happening in India today must concern you, me, all of us. It is not containable and separable from the blights and bigotries that we see here and in other parts of the world. Some of you may have seen the images of Hindu nationalists uh, praying for Trump's eventual victory in America. This is particularly true because the hatred and resentment that I'm talking about flourishes as an aspect of the intensifying extremes that global capitalism fosters and are often the consequence of a canny and controlled deflection of rage from being wielded against those in power to finding softer, more vulnerable targets. I'm sure this is again a a phenomenon that is familiar to you. Before I go on to explain what I mean by extremism and why Hindu extremism matters in a global frame, at least as much as white supremacist racism, uh, the kind that Black Lives Matter challenges, or the Taliban's systematic assaults on the long discriminated against Hazara peoples, let's just take a quick snapshot of events that have taken place in India just over the last six to seven months. That is in the calendar year 2016 so far. And I've just, I've just distilled them into seven. In several instances, Dalits and Muslims have been beaten up for either carrying, transporting, or working with cow carcasses or for consuming beef. In a grotesque twist, when some protested against this treatment by refusing to work with cow carcasses, they were attacked for not doing so. Last year, a Muslim man was mob lynched for allegedly eating beef. Two Dalits, one of whom was a child, was hanged from, were hanged from trees for cattle transportation. There's been a rash of attacks by a so-called cow protection squad, vigilantes roaming around looking for victims. On July 11th, the horrific flogging of Dalits, again including a child in Una in Gujarat, for skinning a dead cow, was caught on a video that went viral. And it is only when it went viral that the authorities acted. In the words of one Hindutva activist, Those who consider India their country must treat the cow as mother. There have been attacks on couples who have married across caste or faith. Not long ago, a young lower caste man was burned alive for his relationship with an upper caste woman. 
there have been claims that Muslim men are waging what is called love jihad by marrying young Hindu women. The state of Kashmir is in, a, is, is in a state of military siege with nearly 100 killed in the last eight weeks alone, including a college lecturer beaten to death, and thousands, thousands have been blinded by small pellets, all at the hands of the Indian army, which operates with legal impunity in the region. Criminal complaints are routinely filed against journalists who have written exposés of how Hindu extremist organizations function, most recently uh, for an exposé in Outlook magazine uh, about child trafficking for the purposes of ideological indoctrination and grooming. There have been stabbings of Christian pastors, vandal attacks on churches, including arson. People are routinely compelled to shout Bharat Mata Ki Jai, or victory to Mother India, with the threat of physical harm for doing so. Recent footage emerged, in fact, just yesterday, of arrested Kashmiri boys uh, being beaten and being made to chant uh, victory to Mother India. Sedition charges were filed against Amnesty International last week for hosting an event on Kashmir. A few days ago, an actress faced complaints for saying that Pakistan was not, in fact, hell after all. Sedition charges have been filed against students from my alma mater, Jawaharlal Nehru University, for hosting an event on Kashmir. They're still awaiting trial on bail, but have been rusticated from the university. In the past, NGOs like Greenpeace have been targeted by the authorities. People have even been arrested for liking Facebook posts deemed to be anti-national. And I have to say that Facebook has cooperated in very shameful ways with the Indian authorities, and this really raises questions about it, it as a platform for activism. Now, you could say these are isolated, unconnected incidents of occasional criminality, but unfortunately they're not. As the Indian movie star Amir Khan has noted, to immediate and shrill denunciation, in the last two years, something has definitively shifted in the atmosphere of that country. Khan, a Muslim by birth, spoke of a sense of growing disquiet and a sense of fear, one which was prompting his Hindu wife to wonder whether they could continue to raise their child in India. It isn't that violence or bigotry or fear were absent, before, but something has definitely shifted. Perhaps the level of impunity with which forces of violence and bigotry operate and the extent to which hitherto subterranean forces have felt empowered to operate freely and to take on much higher public profiles. As is also happening in other places, not least the United States, but to a far greater extent, in India, after the election of uh, uh, Narendra Modi, we have seen once shunned outlier chauvinist forces enjoy a far greater public profile and more worryingly increased institutional presence in influential institutions of governance, higher education and public policy. Foremost among these is the still secretive organization known as the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, the RSS, of which Narendra Modi has been a member from his youth. And the RSS is enjoying unprecedented access to the corridors of power and enormous levels of influence in government and policy making, which are going to have lethal consequences in coming decades. Imagine, if you would, and it's not entirely fantastical these days, sadly, an organization like the Ku Klux Klan, in its, you know, in its origins and ideas, embedding itself over nearly a century into American society and producing the next American president, its functionaries holding influential positions in organs of governance. 
The KKK, however, can only dream of having the influence that the RSS has garnered in India over the course of a long game and a century. The all-male RSS is the mother load for a network of Hindutva organizations, groups that offer different faces of political Hinduism rather than religious practice, which we must separate. And these are collectively known as the Sang Parivar or the Sang family, and they include the BJP, which is in power in India today. It's the ruling party. And it includes the VHP, which also oversees much of the international outreach work in the Asian diaspora and beyond. Hindutva organizations have a presence in all Western nations. The RSS versus foreign arm is the HSS, the Hindu Swayamsevak Sangh, which along with the VHP has a presence in Australia. I want to pause briefly on the history of the RSS as it bears upon the present, and not least because it gives us the background for Prime Minister Modi, who in Australia, as anywhere else in the West, has been received with what is now routinely referred to by the Indian media as a rock star reception. He's been with the organization from a young age. It was founded in 1925. Its uniform of white shirts and khaki shorts modeled explicitly on that of the British colonial police, and it stresses physical and mental discipline, bodybuilding, and exercise remain central to its regimen, which is founded on the notion that Hindu men have been weakened, that is, feminized over the centuries, and need to be remilitarized in a process of recovering lost masculinity. Those selected for membership take an oath to remain life members under the oversight of a supreme leader and to, quote, carry out unhesitatingly any order given by the Sung and to never reveal any defects in the organization, even at the cost of my life. This is presumably an oath that Prime Minister Modi would also have taken. Its central idea is that Hindus are weakened by looseness and fragmentation and that a militarized strong Hindu majoritarianism should be the foundation of India as a renewed Hindu nation or Hindu Rashtra. When Jawaharlal Nehru referred to the RSS as an Indian version of fascism, he was alluding in part to the modeling of RSS squads on Italian fascist organizations, but you don't have to take his word for it. B.S. Munje, another RSS founding figure, visited Italy in 1931, met and was impressed by Mussolini, and praised the Italian Balila movement, which organized military training and fascist indoctrination, saying, our institution is of this kind, though quite independently conceived. The RSS's second and most influential leader, M.S. Golvalkar, put flesh on the bones of this ideological scaffolding, critiquing Nehru's idea of India as a multicultural and multinational state. He drew explicitly on German theorists of the time who were also elaborating an ethnically homogeneous nation, theory of nation with unities of race, religion, culture, language, and territory. So this is from uh, Goldwalker's uh, book, uh, We or Our Nationhood Defined. To keep up the purity of the race and its culture, Germany shocked the world by her purging of the Semitic races, the Jews. Race pride at its highest has been manifested here. Germany has shown how well nigh impossible it is for races and cultures, having differences going to the root, to be assimilated into one united whole, a good lesson for us in Hindustan to learn and profit by. In Golvalkar's view, 
foreign races, by which he means Muslims and Christians, needn't necessarily be cleansed, but may, and I quote him again, may stay in the country wholly subordinated to the Hindu nation, claiming nothing, deserving no privileges, far less any preferential treatment, not even citizens' rights, end of quote. Versions of this, in case you think this was only in, uh, in the 1930s, have been reiterated in recent years by Hindutva leaders. It is worth noting that unlike its German cousin, Hindu chauvinism upholds hierarchical principles and cultural homogeneity rather than racial purity or a single supreme leader. Described variously as upper caste racism or Hindu fascism, what we can say, as the eminent scholar Christophe Jaffrelot has noted, is that the RSS's ideology is explicitly totalitarian in character, a relationship which, in which a uniform system of socialization prepares men and women to participate in one collective entity, the national community. To those who would suggest that comparisons can't be made between Hindu chauvinism on the Indian political scene and Nazism, uh, you know, people who insist that to call something fascist today, it must look exactly like Germany in 1938, I would say it does not and it cannot, though even so, there are some startling family resemblances. Overlooking the manifold new shoots and roots of fascism, not least in India, is going to be a costly mistake for the world at large. Fascism in the 21st century is an emergent ideology and practice. Its new face cannot be fully recognized or its contours entirely drawn out ahead of time. But there is a thicket of warning signs despite the predictable routine disclaimers and atrocious rewriting of history, including the insistence that Nathuram Godse, Gandhi's assassin, had nothing to do with the RSS. That's patently untrue. The eminent historian Schumit Sarkar has noted that fascism has come to power, had come to power in Italy and Germany through a combination of street violence, carefully orchestrated from above, but still undeniably with mass support, deep infiltration into the police, bureaucracy, and army, and the connivance of centrist political leaders. Crude violations of laws and constitutional norms consequently had alternated in fascist and Nazi behaviors with loud protestations of respect for legality. And these are the features which are also ongoing in Indian politics today. But above all, what is most worrying is the feature that Hindutva-inflected India certainly shares with Germany in the 1930s, the demonizing of the outsider figure, which is unsurprisingly central to the, their process of determining what India is and who is a true Indian, alongside the claim that in order to be a true Indian, you must accept the primacy of Hinduism. This isn't exactly excision or expulsion, but assimilation or annexation. In theory, everyone can belong to the entity called India, but strictly on the terms set by upper caste interpreters of a very narrow form of Hinduism. But the cleansing language, which identifies and targets others who do not belong to the body politic of India, is never very far away, as are also the kinds of demographic claims about breeding and swamping that are familiar to us from other discourses of ethnic cleansing. Hamdo Hamare Pachis goes one very popular Hindutva saying, which translates roughly to, we are five and we produce 25, referring to Muslim polygamy and a supposedly high fertility rate for Muslim women. 
Hindus are repeatedly told by adherents of Hindutva that in due course they will be outnumbered by Muslims. Indeed, when shutting down relief camps for the thousands of Muslims displaced by the Gujarat massacres in 2002, Modi, then the chief minister of Gujarat, mockingly referred to them as baby-making factories. Again, one might see this sort of thing as outlandish fringe behavior, but that would be to minimize the extent to which these ideas are spreading, turned into common sense in India, and more to the point, the extent to which its propagators occupy positions of power, a process that is now only intensifying. One VHP leader recently announced, now that we have achieved the mission of making a Congress-free India, it is time to make India Muslim-free. It also seizes something to, that can be consigned to the fringe when it underlies mass episodes and mass multiple episodes of violence, as in the case of Gujarat in 2002, which are not so much riots as pogroms. There's a very long history, but I'm going to touch briefly on the 20-year period between 1992 and uh, 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 2002 when, uh, sorry, the 10-year period between 10, 20? 10-year period, uh, between, uh, between uh, 1992 and, and 2002, which was a watershed period which saw the ascendancy of the Hindu right to its present high position. Um, what basically happened is that in an illustration of their claim that India originally belonged to the Hindus, uh, forces of Hindutva have long propounded archaeologically and historically questionable theories, one of them being that the people of the Indus Valley were Vedic people. They were not. Another is the claim that the god Ram or Rama was born in a specific spot in the ancient town of Ayodhya and that a temple on that very spot was demolished by the Mughal emperor Babur who erected a mosque there. While there is absolutely no doubt that Muslim kings, like kings everywhere, victorious in battle, demolished old structures and replaced them with symbols of their own supremacy, the mosque at Ayodhya was not especially controversial in post-independence India until the late 1980s when the BJP found it expedient to use the site and, and a relatively insignificant campaign to build a temple there as a high-profile means of stirring up upper-caste Hindu emotions in the wake of a commission which called for wide-ranging reforms on the matter of caste, including reservations in higher education and employment for communities at the sharp end of the caste hierarchy. On December 6, 1992, the Sangparivar campaign to build a temple on the very spot that they claim uh, Rama was born made a, a sudden and unexpected advance in the face of legal injunctions as a very large mob of Hindutva activists, or car sevaks as they call themselves, broke through a police cordon and pretty much brought the mosque down to rubble with their bare hands and basic tools. Since then, the campaign to build a temple on that very spot has been ongoing, periodically whipped into political expedient frenzies, followed by bloodletting and destructive violence. Fast forward then to February 2002 and a ghastly incident when temple building volunteers were returning from the, uh, the town of Ayodhya and 59 of them perished, including several women and children, in an unconscionable fire which was set to their train carriage. Grisly and unforgivable though that episode was, it was eclipsed by the cold-blooded, widespread and vicious retaliatory violence that was visited upon the hapless Muslims of the state of Gujarat, which Narendra Modi was chief minister of at the time. And this violence began after the charred bodies of the 59 uh, uh, 
people in the train were taken over the heads and the advice of senior police officers by the VHP and publicly dis uh, displayed in the Gujarat capital of Ahmedabad. Any hope that restraint would be shown was probably out of the question when Modi himself, before any investigation had begun, had declared the burning of the, tree, uh, the train carriage, quote, a pre-planned inhuman collective act of violent act of terrorism. A contention which has since been decisively disproved, but for which Modi has made no apology. In contrast, he has described his feelings at the mass killings of hundreds of Muslims as similar to the regret a driver feels when his car accidentally runs over the child of a dog, i.e. a puppy. But if that were not enough, questions remain, notwithstanding the repeated claims that the Supreme Court has issued a so-called clean shit, which is really not possible since Modi was never tried or even questioned under oath about the extent to which police and government agencies were involved either in active complicity or in turning a blind eye and serving police officers at the time have testified to some of this complicity. We have no orders to save you as the title of a shock, shocking Human Rights Watch report had it. In the retaliatory attacks by Hindu mobs against Muslims, some led by members of Modi's cabinet, now convicted for doing so, more than 1,000 died and over 150,000 were displaced. I mean, many Hindus died, but very, very many more Muslims died. Muslim women and girls were raped, fetuses removed from abdomens, and people set on fire. Homes and small businesses were looted and burned, and the attackers were reportedly armed with printouts showing Muslim addresses of Muslim families, which cannot have been obtained without insider complicity. As the intrepid journalist Manoj Mitta has noted of the so-called clean shit issued to Modi by a special investigative tribunal whose failings he documents meticulously, when the right questions are not put, there will neither be the right evidence nor the right answers. Even so, as I've said, one minister, a woman in Modi's cabinet was convicted, but since he has come to power at the center, she is now on furlough from prison on the grounds of uh, ill health and has been found enjoying herself at a yoga retreat. I raise these incidents at the risk of being accused as a standard by supporters of Hindutva of dredging up the past, and I raise these incidents not just, not, not just because the past is not in the past and very much shapes the present, but also that the story of extremism in India has been one of enormously successful rehabilitation and mainstreaming of just the sorts of tendencies that even 20 years ago would have been considered beyond the pale. This again is a process uh, that has global manifestations, and I'm sure you're familiar with it here, where truly repellent ideas, dangerous to the majority of us, are watered down and then turned into lethal common sense. In the case of India, this is in no small part due to a combination that was once considered unlikely, Hindu chauvinism and global capitalism. It is no accident, really, that the rise of the Hindu right, once considered to be implacably hostile to economic liberalization, has coincided with the entrance of India into the global big league of so-called emergent economies at a time when the war on terror is a global keynote. As the writer Siddhartha Deb notes in a recent piece chronicling the rise and rehabilitation of Narendra Modi, in the past 15 years, the top 1% of earners in India have increased their share of the country's wealth from 36.8% to 53%, with the top 10 earning, owning 76.3%. 
And yet, India remains a stunningly poor country, riven with violence and brutal hierarchies, held together with shoddy infrastructure and marked by the ravages of lopsided growth, pollution, and climate change. I highly recommend this essay, which is uh, in the New Republic a few months ago. Yet, of course, this form of capitalism on steroids welcomed by Western leaders, is precisely what has enabled the transformation of Modi from someone whom the Bush government, no less, denied a travel visa to, to a leader now welcomed in the capitals of the G8, um, so that where you know, all questions are forgotten, no issue so big that it can't be swept under the human rights carpet. This is best exemplified, perhaps, by Modi's relationship with the Gujarati billionaire businessman, whose name will be familiar to you, Gautam Adani, who has long defended Modi's record on human rights and has been duly rewarded with state support of controversial projects. He accompanied Modi, you will recall, to the G20 summit in Australia two years ago, and he has been able to undertake in India what so far eludes him here, which is massive projects with state subsidies and terrible environmental consequences. Also close to the mega-wealthy Ambani business family, for whom he appeared in an advertisement uh, two days ago, Modi's aspiration to transform India into a network, a network of so-called smart cities laced with aggressive Hindu patriot games needs to be seen for the dangerous project that it is. A measure of this can be grasped for the level of abuse anyone who raises even the slightest question about the present regime receives, the systematic trolling and threatening of even the mildest critiques, and now increasingly criminal complaints filed against them on charges of being anti-national. A few year, weeks ago, the administration of the famously plural and dissident JNU put in motion plans to shut down a tea shack. Yes, a tea shack, beloved of students and teachers. Why? No reason given, but it is a place where people meet to debate, exchange ideas, and dispute orthodoxies. That, in the present climate, is becoming increasingly untenable, and from the regime's point of view, intolerable. As with any project allied to cultural supremacism, Hindutva targets intellectuals and centers of study. In India, this has taken the form of attacking universities and prominent scholars whose books are pulped, as well as producing bowdlerized school textbooks. Modi himself has written prefaces to children's textbook, which claim that the flying chariots of the ancient Hindu epic, the Ramayana, prove that jet planes were invented in India, in ancient India. While opening hospitals, he has suggested that plastic surgery was also invented in ancient India, as the elephant head of the god Ganesha proves. World-class reputable institutions like the Indian Council for Historical Research and the Film and Television Institute of India are now run by Hindutva propagators with no academic credentials whatsoever, but people who are adept at changing the story. By the way, changing textbooks to further the Hindutva projects, uh, project extends to Western co uh, countries. There's been a sustained effort by the so-called Hindu Education Foundation in California to play the multicultural card to change textbooks there so as to minimize things such as caste discrimination and gender oppression. I understand that the VHP has been authorized by the New South Wales Department of Education to, quote, run religious and plural and cultural classes in public schools, and is, quote, developing syllabus and teaching materials to help volunteers who teach Hindu scripture in New South Wales schools. This needs to be put a stop to as a, as a matter of the highest priority. 
But to imagine that all Hindutva offers in the era of Modi is religious dogma and obscurantist claims about the invention of plastic surgery and space travel in ancient India would be to miss a vital part of the story behind the rise of an RSS functionary to the highest office of government. The great success of the Hindu right in India has been to harness a yearning for unique cultural supremacy and distinctiveness with the leveling, homogenizing power of the hyper-tech, hyper-capitalist present, where deregulation, information technology, globalization, and high finance rules. What we see in India is the lethal, and I mean lethal, combination of a rapacious capitalism on steroids and a poisonous, militarized Hindu majoritarianism. And if it continues not only unchecked, but given the world's rehabilitating approval, the future will be grim indeed. Um, I think I've got about four minutes, Anne. Yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of wind up. Um, just... One thing I want to say is that one of the canards that has been used from Golvalkar's time to the present day is the idea that critics of Hindutva are pseudo-secularists, that in fact it is only uh, Hinduism which can be a truly secular religion. And that secularism takes the form of annexing everything to the umbrella of Hinduism, so that if, if you agree that Hinduism is the, is the truly secular religion and that, that is, it is the supreme religion of India, then you uh, can come under its umbrella, and so it is truly too, uh, tolerant because it will allow you under its uh, umbrella. I should also point out, and I think this is important in the context of Australia, that there are also those who are the targets of a long-term and very deliberate process of assimilation, uh, and, and these are the Adivasi or the Aboriginal people of India whose faith practices are varied and animist rather than historically anything that might be recognized uh, as Hindu. And what's happening is that there is a very systematic project of appropriating indigenous identity by uh, claiming that Hindus are the indigenous peoples of India and actually wiping out the cultures and beliefs of the actual first peoples, the Adivasis, in a process that we can easily uh, see as cultural and religious cleansing or purification, as Hindutva would call it. Um, so, to end, in many ways, the story of the rise of the Hindu right to the level of prominence it enjoys in India now is of a nation which, instead of full decolonization, is witnessing what I call a recolonization. And that is, my, in short, my assessment of what's going on. Having failed to participate in any significant way in the anti-colonial struggle against the British Empire, Hindutva's program has been one of bringing another form of colonial rule to the multiple regions, peoples, and communities that constitute the uh, Republic of India. Is this picture too bleak? Is there hope? To the extent that there will be concerted and effective resistance to the Hindutva project, it will come from those who are determined to put the, the question of Kashmir's future on the table, facing down anything from prison to pellets and bullets to do so. It will also come from India's Dalits and other oppressed castes who have been the target of repeated upper caste violence, but who have not taken it lying down. In recent weeks, they have fought back with vigor and counter-organized, making clear that they will not accept the status quo. It will also take the form of the resistance of millions of Indians, that is the two-thirds who did not vote for Modi or the, BHP, uh, the BJP, for whom Hinduism, warts and all, is a gentler, more flexible and tolerant practice than it is for the hardliners in power today. 
A general strike this past Friday saw nearly 2% of the world's population, millions of workers, stand up and refuse the current regime's relentless assault on labor rights, including allowing child labor to return in another form. Their actions and my own observations today are rooted in India's numerous traditions of tolerance and dissent, precisely those which are under attack by the false custodians of Indianness as Hinduism. It is in the survival of these that we must rest our faith, though not complacency, and in the triumph of the most wonderfully dangerous idea of all, that human beings can exist and flourish and nurture their own singularity without contempt for the lives of others. In the light of that idea, I do want to unequivocally from this platform condemn the dehumanizing corralling of suffering people in detention camps off the shores of this vast and prosperous island, a shameful blot on this country. And I call on the Australian government, along with the very many dissidents in this country, to shut the camps and bring these people to safety. To this end, I've requested the Opera House to please donate the speaker's fee that they've kindly offered me for this talk to an appropriate advocacy organization and a relief organization. And with that, I will just thank you very much for listening, and I'm done. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.